Bodkar, Director of the Australia-China Relations Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney. Welcome to the ACRI podcast. Today I'm joined by Ji Tao, Professor of Political Science at the School of English and International Studies at Beijing Foreign Studies University. His current research focuses on Chinese foreign policy and US-China relations. He's the author of US-China Relations, China Policy on Capitol Hill, and Living with the Dragon, How the American Public Views the Rise of China, with Benjamin Page. He's a frequent guest on CCTV News, the BBC, CNN, Al Jazeera, and China Radio International. Today we're going to be talking about US-China relations and their potential impact on the Australia-China relationship. Tao, welcome to Sydney. It's good to have you you in Australia on your first visit. Yeah, this is my great pleasure to be here. My first time to be in this country is amazing. Well, uh, we're we're very keen to have you back again. Let me begin by saying, do Americans see China increasingly as a threat? Do they perceive China's rise and do they view it as something threatening? Absolutely, Bob. You know, look at the public opinion polls, for example. Public perception of China as an increasing threat, for example, look at the two categories, critical and important threats. And if you add up the two categories of responses, they add up to about 92% of the U.S. general population. Of course, Bob, you have to believe that these polls are accurate. They really tap into the underlying sentiments of the ordinary American people. And is this mainly related to the loss of American jobs in manufacturing? Is this something that, rightly or wrongly, gets sheeted home to the rise of China? Well, there are two dimensions. You know, one is the military dimension of China's rise, and then the second dimension is the economic dimension, which is more familiar to the average American. You look at the polls, actually, most ordinary Americans perceive China's threat primarily in economic dimension. This, most of them still believe that America is a military power. It has a military dominance over China. But that kind of a gap, perception gap, is increasingly closing up. So that means you know, the economic dimension, uh, threat perception, is spilling over to the military area. And so in that sense, I think you know, this mixture of economic and uh, military uh, threat perception is adding up to this whole picture. Is, is the view of policymakers better educated, more refined, more discriminating than that of the, the public? Or have you got waves of panic um, justified or not justified, moving through the policy elite in Washington? Excellent question, Bob. You know, so you look at, you know, actually, there are some survey organizations that have been conducting public polls as well as the so-called political elites surveys. And you look at the results, actually, the political elites seem to be much, much less uh, having a perception of a threat from China. So you look at, for example, um, military perception and economic perception. Elites tend to be about like twice less likely to be uh, feeling like threatened by China, whereas the public, interestingly, seems to be feeling much more threats from China. Now you have to factor in this fact that uh, public uh, opinion is very much heavily influenced by elite discourse, right? What they say on media, on television. However, you look at the results that the elites actually seem to be less uh, frightened by the rise of China than the public. And the latter, of course, is often on the receiving end of elite messages and uh, interviews and others. You know, so this is a puzzle to me. When when America completes the review of trade policy mm-hmm. with China, what do your friends in China expect to happen? 
are we headed for a trade war, for, for retaliatory measures by the United States, or is our Chinese policymakers working on something they can offer the Americans about more meaningful access to Chinese markets, more, more access for American car and truck exports, for example? I wouldn't really say that we're in for a trade war between the two economic powers. You can look at the precedent that is back in early 1990s, after 1989, the Tiananmen Square incident, Congress repeatedly tried to impose human rights conditions on China's, at that time, so-called most favored nation trade status, right? And China threatened to retaliate. But in the end, you know, because of President Bill Clinton and others, you know, this never happened. So you look at President Barack Obama, he threatened to call China a um, currency manipulator. This never happened. Donald Trump, he said, you know, on my first day in the White House, I would designate China currency manipulator. This never happened. And then, so I think it's yesterday, he had this uh, press conference saying, where we're, you know, having this presidential memorandum and directing USTR to investigate Chinese unfair trade practices. Well, I think, you know, in a democracy, politicians often feel compelled to do something to pacify their constituents. And given Donald Trump's presidential style, if there is a style at all, and I wouldn't be surprised that he would do this. And presumably he says, I want to do this because we want to get China to use its leverage on Pyongyang you know, for the nuclear weapons. But in my view that Donald Trump would do this regardless what happens in Pyongyang. And he would have to do this. You know, this is kind of like, to me, a symbolic politics. You have to do something. And could it be something that's, that's um, largely symbolic and yeah. not very real, something that the Chinese feel they can live with, with a, a shrug of their shoulders? Yes, yes. So you already announced the um, uh, investigations. You know, actually, they just said he directs a USTR to investigate. But there's no report saying that China is indeed you know, a violator of uh, fair trade practices. You know? So we still have to wait for at least a couple of months before USTR or any other U.S. government agency releases any report about China's so-called unfair trade practices. Do you see a prospect of U.S.-China cooperation? Do you see that with, with trade settled and perhaps a grand bargain on, on North Korea, the prospect of China and the U.S. working together more closely than people now might think possible? We have to assume many things, you know, in terms of a grand bargain. At the very beginning of his presidency, I think, you know, President Donald Trump suggested that he would use trade as something like a quid pro quo with uh, Beijing. But that apparently failed, didn't, you know, really work. Today, I think it would be really for somebody to, to have that kind of illusion that you can use trade as a bargaining chip to persuade China to do more. I think, you know, when you come to strategic policies, you have to exchange with similar strategic incentives. Trade and economics are on a different track. And these policies, as you know, Bob, that, you know, these, the benefits of trade are widely spread, but its costs are very narrowly concentrated. Yeah. So in any democracy, you often get a vocal groups fighting for this. So in my view, unless China can really persuade South Korea, to go along with uh, Beijing's policy. And it seems like you know, Beijing is, is working successfully on this. Look at South Korean president's speech yesterday. He said, you know, we would not allow any war on the Korean Peninsula. And that's a message to Washington, D.C. Without South Korean approval, U.S. unilateral military attacks against Pyongyang would be a disaster. Yeah. Um, 
How do you see North Korea playing out and how do you address the widely held view in America and also in Australia that a very oft expressed view, I suppose, breezily delivered? China can do more. Everywhere you go, you hear people say China can do more and, and therefore this is China's problem. Well, but the matter of fact, as I said you know, to uh, uh, Frank Kelly on the radio television interview, is that you know, China really cannot do any more. You look at many Chinese inside analysis, you know, people that I know of. The, for example, there's a piece from South China Morning Post by Professor at Peking University. He says, you know, it's terribly wrong for Western analysts to turn to Beijing. Beijing's influence over Pyongyang is very limited. And there are many reasons why our influence there is very limited. Number one, in my view, is that you know, some North Koreans believe that you know, they are as nationalistic as us. Okay. I think you know, communism, really, you scratch every communist, you find a nationalist. That's the case for China. That's the case for Ho Chi Minh. That's the case for Kim Jong-un's father and grandfather. And second reason is that you know, because I think you know, they believe that we have betrayed them by adopting this uh, political and economic reform and then by establish diplomatic relations with South Korea. And so this, this whole dynamics of strategic uh, politics in the Korean Peninsula has, in my view, fundamentally changed. So within China, many people argue that we should so-called abandon North Korea. But then there are others who adamantly say, this is absolutely nonsense. It is in the best interest of China to continue to support Pyongyang unconditionally. So within China... It's, These are people within the Chinese oh yeah, foreign affairs yeah, but, establishment yeah, who argue that case. Believe me, you know, this is a sharply divisive issue within China. In my view that, you know, to talk about North Korea in China is really to talk about Chinese domestic politics. So factions in the Chinese Communist Party can be identified yeah. partly by reference to their views yes, yes, on, yeah. what, on what stance China should take on North Korea. But not just the Chinese foreign policy establishment, but Chinese academics. Chinese media pundits, you know. So today you go to conference, you say, I support uh, North Korea, and people say, you're conservative. If you say, we should abandon North Korea, you're a liberal. Yeah. That's a li yeah. litmus test you know, yeah. in China today. And it strikes me that the, the policy of Beijing is somewhere in the middle. Yeah, our policy, official policy, is somewhere in the middle. We don't really want to go too pro-Pyongyang, or we don't want to go like, you know, too much on the antagonist side, you know. So, like, so, for example, you look at the most recent UN Security Council sanction, right? The Minister of Commerce already posted like, the content of the sanctions on its website, saying the following items are prohibited from importing from North Korea. This is a message to Chinese companies. Don't violate UN Security Council sanctions. Would China actually achieve anything if the, the liberals in China had their way and completely isolated North Korea? If it were reduced to poverty... Mm -hmm. Is it going to be any more likely to give up its nuclear weapons development? Not necessarily. Uh, one of the concerns for those who want to pop up uh, North Korea is that you know, we're going to have a massive, probably unprecedented humanitarian crisis. Lots of refugees would cross border, and that would uh, devastate northeast China. But I think that's kind of uh, uh, exaggerated. Why would the people who speak Korean want to come over to China? I think their natural choice should be South Korea, right? What is China's fundamental interest in the Korean Peninsula? How would you express it? Again, because I disagree with many of these uh, so-called you know, pro-Pyongyang people. In their view, 
the Korean Peninsula was and remains and will continue to be a strategic buffer between U.S. and China as long as the United States has a strong military presence in the Korean Peninsula and in Japan. So in other words, unless the United States withdraws its troops from South Korea and Okinawa, and then many Chinese officials and the Chinese analysts would perceive this as a very important strategic buffer. Could you see a different government in Japan, mm -hmm. and we speak at a time when the Abe government is less popular than it's ever been, mm -hmm. a different government in Japan wanting to commit to a high level of cooperation with China? Mm -hmm. It's possible. I think there are already signs, for example, that the state councillor Yang Jiechi, you know, he met with a, a Japanese counterpart. It's, it's, it's possible, but I wouldn't put too much bets on a rapprochement between Japan and China. Really, this this like, you know, uh, anti-Japanese nationalistic sentiments run extremely deep. As somebody who knows China as you as well as you do, you know what I'm talking about, really. It's very hard. It takes generations. Isn't it just turned on and turned off to suit Beijing? Mm. I, I mean, you think of all those Chinese tourists who yeah, go yeah. to Japan. Yeah. You think of the overlap yeah. of culture between yeah. China and Japan. I just wonder how how deep it does run. Well, you're right. You know, there is certain elements of that that has been whipped up, right? You can use the word manipulated. But then I think there are larger elements that are really kind of spontaneous. Now, you think about the tourists who come to Australia, come to Tokyo for shopping. Most of these are middle class, you know, better educated than the average Chinese. They are much more cosmopolitan. And less nationalist. Yeah, less yeah. nationalistic, right? And, 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 and so when you look at this issue, I give an example, about, about Bob, you know, uh, the best-selling Chinese movie now. I don't know if you heard about this. It's called War Wolf in Beijing. This is War Wolf 2, number two. It's already, um, uh, box office sales is already 4 billion Chinese RMB. Now, why is this popular? It's all about the Chinese soldiers. You know, this is nationalism, patriotism. My students strongly encouraged me to go and watch this, but I didn't have the time. But they say, you have to really watch this movie to understand China's current popular opinion. Certainly when I'm in China looking for an English language station, every Chinese TV station seems to have a drama uh -huh. about World War II. Yes, and especially about the anti-Japanese yeah. war. Right, yeah. right. You're right. Um, uh, but now I think, you know, maybe you can say it's because of these movies that Chinese people are becoming more anti-Japanese. But many can say maybe it's because there's already this anti-Japanese sentiments in the first hand. And so the movie producers, they are catering to this. It's just like, you know, what is the cause and effect between Donald Trump and this, like, you know, nationalistic and you know, white supremacist sentiments in the United States, right? It's hard to really separate them. Um, so I, I, you know, I personally would hope that Japan and China would have kind of a, a reconciliation, very much like what happened between Germany and France. Without the reconciliation between China and Japan, I think it would be very hard to have a lasting peace and stability in East Asia. Would it be a cunning thing for Chinese leaders to do to sort of undercut the United States and mm. just reach out a hand towards Japan? Well, well, that would be desirable, but I don't know whether this is feasible. Now, even if Beijing reach out to Tokyo, and I don't know whether Tokyo leaders would really be willing to reach out because there's a lot of political costs involved. Within Japan, there's also a small but very vocal minority 
who says we did nothing during the Second World War. Is China too focused, is the Chinese public too focused on the World War II experience? Is there a time to relegate that to the, to the history books and not have it live actively in the imagination, the popular imagination? I know that's a very hard thing to do, and Australia, compared with China, was barely touched mm-hmm. by World War II. It was the most traumatic experience in our history when Singapore fell and an army of 20,000 went into captivity, but compared with the Chinese experience of Japanese occupation, it was being very lightly touched indeed. But might there be a time when the rest of the world says to China, other countries have got over the experience of occupation, Israel, with its special narrative, deals with Germany. Might China have to do that with Japan? China's history, um, let's say modern history, from, let's say, uh, the Opium War until today, is not re- necessarily all about Japan. Japan is a big part. The so-called the center of humiliation, you know this, is about not just Japan, but also about foreign powers in general. Uh, now, foreign powers generally includes the United States, Russians, you know, French, and others, right? Uh, but of course, today, China, it, you know, look at China, US, China, uh, France, and China, Russia, they seem to have good relations. But down deep at this collective memory level, I would use a term, oh. collective oh. memory, there's always this kind of underlying memory that China was abused, China was wronged. Now you remember this, you know, China was the most powerful country in East Asia for over one millennium. And so that kind of a victimization complex added with China's rising power. And that could easily pave the way for a very powerful round of nationalism. And so I wouldn't be surprised and I wouldn't blame the Chinese, ordinary Chinese people who now feel very proud when they go to Europe, when they come to Australia. Because now the Chinese can afford to buy things here, right? They can buy up the things in Paris, in London, and in New York. That kind of, I would call this a genuine pride of China's economic achievement in the past four decades. Yeah, and very easy to understand given that no country has made a transition like that in yeah. such a short period yeah. on such a vast scale. A final question. Australia, it appears to us in ACRI, uh, this year has had its leaders make anti-Chinese statements. Whether they're justified or not, we should set aside. But uh, there's been no other period when the Australian leadership in decades has been as consistently critical of China Mm -hmm. as it appears to have been in the last six months. Mm -hmm. How's this perceived in China? We'll have to be honest, Bob, that there's no intention of offence that Australia gets covered and discussed very little in China compared with uh, China, Japan, China, US, China, India, for example, the current standoff, you know, on the Chinese-Indian border. Uh, my, My own sense is that, you know, Chinese tends to have a much more favorable view of Australia. And I would presume that the general public here also tends to reciprocate. In other words, Australians also tend to have a good view. But once it comes to uh, politics, democracy, rule of law, I understand like you know, Australia has its own political culture, tradition. So it's, it's okay. However, when you talk to Beijing, I think you know, you, like one lesson that the United States learned is that after 1989 that if you keep pushing human rights in public, you actually become very counterproductive. So now between U.S. and China, you have a high-level human rights dialogue, right? It hasn't done very much at all, but I think you know, at least you are talking to each other. Yeah. Australia has a, a dialogue uh, yeah. on human rights yeah. with, with China as well. Yeah. 
um, and the people involved in it say that it's focused on practical things, yeah. like, for example, exchanging information about prison, mm-hmm. prison policy and prison conditions yeah. in both countries. Um, Zutar, thank you very, very much for being with us on this ACRI podcast. Um, and I thank our listeners for tuning in. And we look forward to, uh, to further collaboration with you. Mm, thank, thank you. you for, thank you for being our guest here. Mm-hmm. Thanks. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to the ACRI podcast on iTunes. To find out more about the Australia-China Relations Institute, including our research and events, visit our website, australiachinarelations.org. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, at ACRI underscore UTS. Thanks for listening.